time it rains, it rains. Panthers from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains Panthers from heaven? You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be shining your umbrella. He's up, 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 upside down and trading for a package of sunshine and ravioli. Macaroni. If you want the thing you love, you did it. Congratulations. World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. It's great to meet you. Hi. Now come over here, boy. Sam. And every time it rains, it rains. And don't you know it's confident? Looks like a Christmas tree. That's one of my favorite Christmas movies. It goes up there uh, right up at my house with It's a Wonderful Life Now and Christmas Vacation and some of those other movies. We watch that, watch that every year. And what I love about that movie so much is because it, it's what Will Ferrell, who plays uh, Buddy the Elf, he does such a great job of displaying this childlike innocence and wonder about everything he sees. And whatever it is, it's, it's like he's seeing things for the very first time. 
And, and those of you that have raised kids and, and are raising kids, you can remember those moments where your, your little ones would, would understand something or they'd see something for the first time, and to you it was just, you know, regular old, oh, this has been going on for years, and they see it, and it's like their face lights up, and all of a sudden they get it, and, and they're just amazed by it. And when I thought about this, this movie, the thing that I thought about in relating it to, to what we're going to talk about this month at Christmas is that there is this wonder that we should have about Christmas, about the fact that Jesus came to earth, but for some reason we lose that. And I want us to try to gain back some of that wonder that we have lost over time. Uh, there's a, a pastor in, in California who I like a lot, and if you've been here during June when we've done the One Prayer series, we've watched him on the screen. His name is Francis Chan. And we got to hear Francis speak a couple months ago at a conference, and, and he said something that was so true. He said, you know, he said, every year at Easter, we try to come up with new ways to make the resurrection of Christ more exciting. He said, how, more exci you know, how much more exciting can it be? And I thought about the same thing for Christmas. We try to come up with, well, how can we explain you know, the birth of Jesus to where it'll be exciting to people? Listen, Jesus came to earth. It was God coming to earth. That should be enough right there. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to try to kind of step out of our cynical selves and look at that. Now, I understand that we live in a world, and, and culture has kind of created us, uh, you know, has, has shaped us into these cynical beings that we are because we get such a barrage of information and nothing seems new to us anymore, nothing seems exciting. I'll give you an example. The next time you turn on the TV and see what looks like a Jiffy Pop container balloon floating through the sky, you're not going to believe that there's a six-year-old boy in there again, right? Because you've been fooled by that one time before, and the next time you see that, you're going to say, man, that boy's upstairs hiding in the closet. I've seen this story before, right? And that's kind of the way we are with a lot of things in society nowadays. It, to us, it's just old hat, and, and it's, we just don't, we don't get impressed by it or that kind of thing anymore, and that kind of bleeds over even into our spiritual lives, and Christmas comes, and we just do the Christmas thing, and we, we, we lose the wonder that Jesus actually came to earth. So what I want us to do for the next 20 minutes or so is I want you just, if you can, to kind of step out of your cynical adult selves, and just for a little while, let's all be amazed together at the story of Christmas. Let's all look at it with eyes of wonder instead of eyes of, of cynicism. The, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a new TV show on, um, I think it comes on A&E, I'm not exactly sure, maybe Learning Channel or something, but it's called, uh, called Intervention. I don't know if you've seen it. But what it is, it's, it's real stories of people having interventions. Now, an intervention is if there's someone, and maybe some of you have, have been on the receiving end of an intervention, maybe some of you have, have, have done an intervention for someone that you love, but an intervention is... Someone is living a lifestyle that's destroying them, and it's usually through substances. It's through alcohol or drug abuse, and, and they're living this lifestyle, and it's leading them down a path of destruction, and the family or friends of this person will come together, and they'll usually it's a surprise, and they'll show up, and it's not a good surprise for the person, but uh, it, it ends up being good in the long run. But they'll show up, and they'll say, listen, we love you, and, and the path you're going down is going to destroy you, and you need to stop this, and, and we're here, here to help you. We want to do all we can to help you with this. And so there's this intervention that takes place to try to stop these people from, from killing themselves, from hurting themselves with these substances. And as I thought about the story of Christmas, and I, I, began, I kept reading through the passage of Scripture, it occurred to me that Christmas is an intervention. Christmas is God intervening in our lives. 
Christmas is God intervening in the lives of human beings. You know, there's this uh, school of thought or philosophy out there, and I, don't, I think it might be deism. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and check it out. But where that, that, that there's these folks that believe, yeah, there is a God, but He just kind of created the world and He set it all in motion. Then He sits back, takes His hands off, and just watches it. That's all He does. He never gets involved in it. Christmas totally blows that theory out of the water because Christmas is God intervening in the lives of humans, intervening in what goes on on earth. And, and we're going to talk about that today. There's several ways that He intervened, and the first one that I want you to think about is this. God intervened. He intervened in time. He intervened in time. And what I mean by that is this. If you open up the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Now, when you look in the book of Matthew, the very first story in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, is the story of Jesus' birth. So you've got first book of the New Testament, Matthew, first story in that book is the story of Jesus' birth. Now, what was the last book that before Matthew? Does anybody know what the last book of the Old Testament was? Anybody remember that? From Malachi. So you've got Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Then you've got Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Well, you know what happened between Malachi and Matthew? Most all reputable Bible scholars, of which I'm not one, but I can read what they write, uh, they all agree that during that time, they call that the intertestamental period, and it's 400 years. And all scholars talk about that it was a 400 years of silence. Now, I'm certain that God was still speaking one-on-one -on -one to people. But as far as a message for the church... As far as a message for God's people, there was nothing for 400 years. Because before Matthew, you had guys like Micah and Amos and Joel and Zechariah and Isaiah and all these guys that were prophets. And they were giving the message of God to the people. They were, they were talking to the nation of Israel and saying, here's what God says. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to be focusing on. Here's how you need to change your life. And so all that was going on. And then all of a sudden, all the prophets are gone and there's 400 years of silence. There's no prophecy. There's nobody being the spokesperson from God. There's silence. And then the silence is broken after 400 years by Jesus coming on the scene. Now, you know what happened during those 400 years that makes this important too? There was, there was a guy named Alexander the Great who came along and he began to conquer things. The Roman Empire began to get strong. The world began to be united kind of under a common language, which was Greek. So now that the message of Jesus, the message of, of the church would be able to be spread more easily because more people spoke a common language. Because the Roman Empire had been established, there was now a greater road system so that people could travel from one place to another to take the message of Christ all these places. And so right in time, right in the moment of history where Jesus would be able to be the most effective at getting out the message to the rest of the world, God brings Jesus to earth. He shows up, he intervened right in time to break the silence that God had not spoken in 400 years. And then here comes Jesus onto the scene after 400 years of silence. Now the second way that Jesus intervened is he intervened in human affairs. He intervened in human affairs. This, I want you to turn to the book of Luke if you've got your Bibles. Luke is in the New Testament, the third book, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read some scripture to you, and then you're going to stay in Luke for the, for the next point as well. This, this part of the story that I'm about to tell you is one of these things, when we talk about God intervening in human affairs, this is one of those things that for years, I mean, I grew up in church, and I've heard this story forever and ever and ever, before I can even remember 
being able to know what was going on, I'd heard about Jesus and Bethlehem and the stable and all those good things. And this is one of the parts of the story that I just for years read over and thought, oh, that's cool, but I never thought about what it meant. So I want you to look at Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to start by reading the first three verses. Luke 2, 1 through 3 says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus, now he was the, the king of Rome at that time, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. By the way, parents, if you want to ruin your kid's life, name him Quirinius, all right? He won't be able to spell his name until he's like in the fifth grade. While Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. Now, you read that and, and you say, okay, yeah, big deal, census, right? We have one of these around here every 10 years. They do a census and somebody will come by your door, they'll send you something in the mail, or probably now you can do it online, I don't know. So big deal, they did a census then, they do census now. But the, but the important part is look at verse 3 again. It says, everyone went to his own town to register. The last time they did a census here, you didn't have to go anywhere. You didn't have to travel to where your ancestors were from. You know, get well, we got to go back home to Detroit, Michigan, because that's where my granddad lived, because we got a census going on, and we got to go back there. We didn't have to do that. But in these days, when they issued, when they had this census that took place, Joseph had to load up his pregnant wife and take off to Bethlehem. And so look at the next two verses, 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now let me ask you this question. If there had not been a census that Julius Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, excuse me, if there had not been a census that Caesar Augustus had said, hey, we're going to make everybody go to their own town, would Jesus have been born in Bethlehem? Probably not. Here's why. Because Joseph was a good man, and he's not going to look at his very pregnant wife. You know, the, the old, I love in the King James Version, it says that she was great with child. I see some women walking around, and well, that woman is great with child. You know, there's pregnant, and then there's really pregnant. You know what I'm talking about? When they're really about to have the baby. And that's the way Mary was. She was about to have this baby. And Joseph, being the man he was, he would never look at his wife and say, Honey, let's go on a trip. Let's put you on a donkey, and we're going to ride for miles and miles and days and days, and you bouncing up and down on that donkey while you're about to have this baby. Let's go take a trip. He would never have done that. But why did he do it? Because the law required him to. Because Caesar Augustus said, there's going to be a decree, you know, that we're going to have a census, and you've got to go back to your hometown. So he goes back to Bethlehem. So now here's the deal. So now you might say, okay, Cliff, so if, if, if there had not been a census, Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. That's no big deal, right? I mean, he's God. He, why does it really matter where he's born? He could have been born in, in Taylor's, South Carolina, for all I care. He's still God. He's still Jesus. No big deal. But look at Micah. You can look at this on the screen. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah 
gave the message from God where God was saying, one day I'm going to send the Messiah. One day I'm going to send the Savior. One day I'm going to send the one you've all been waiting for, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so 700 years later, the guy who is, who is pledged to be married to the woman who's going to have the baby, they live in Nazareth. Oh no, what are we going to do? How are we going to get them to Bethlehem? And Caesar Augustus issues a decree that they have to go to Bethlehem, and God says, boy, I'm glad all that worked out. Because I, I would have been looked like a fool for making this prediction 700 years ago. Is that the way it worked? No, I'll tell you how it worked. God intervened. God intervened in the affairs of humans. Whereas Caesar Augustus thought that he was totally in charge of his own life, and he was totally in charge of what went on in, in his, his kingdom, and he could do whatever he wanted. He said, I'll have this, uh, I have this census taken. He had no idea that that was the work of God, that was God's hand to make that happen, so that Joseph would take Mary and go to Bethlehem. God used a pagan king of an oppressive empire to do what he wanted to do. And you and I worry because there's a Democrat in the White House. What are we going to do? Like God didn't know that was going to happen. Like God's not in control and can do whatever He wants whenever He wants. God intervened in human affairs. And He can do that again. The third way that God intervened that I think is so amazing that we kind of brush over sometimes from time to time is that He intervened in the laws of nature. He intervened in the laws of nature. Look at Luke chapter 1. Just turn over one page there. I'm going to read two passages where you'll see this. Luke 1, verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Now before we go to the next verse, so here's the deal. You got this lady, she's the wife of this priest. She can't have a baby, never has been able to, and it says they're well along in years. I don't know what that means. Probably they were, you know, ladies, I don't know. How, how old do you think is old? But that's how old they were probably. I, I'm going to be very careful with this. You know, I'm not going to say. I mean, they were probably at least over 30, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know. So, so they're well along in years, can't have a baby, never been able to have a baby. And so they, they, they can't do that. So Zechariah, I'm going to tell you what happens next in the story without reading it all to you. Zechariah, since he's the priest, he gets to go in and, and make the sacrifice for the folks, all the people in Israel. So he goes in to do that. While he's in there, an angel shows up and says, hey, Zechariah, your wife's going to have a baby. And not only is she going to have a baby, that baby is going to be the one who's going to pave the way for Jesus. His name was John the Baptist is who he, who he ended up being. He's the one who's going to tell people Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is on his way. Zechariah responded by saying, you've got to be crazy. My wife's old and, and I'm old and all this stuff. So God says, fine, you're not going to be able to talk until the baby's born. So Zechariah comes out and now he can't speak and he's writing on, down on a piece of paper, hey, my wife's going to be pregnant and all this kind of stuff. And then look what happens in verse 24. After his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, just as God said he would, by the way, and for five months remained in seclusion. So God intervened in the laws of nature. Now look at the next passage of Scripture there, Luke 1, 26 through 37. This is one is more familiar to you. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, 
a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be... Virgins don't have babies, by the way, all right? No matter what anybody's ever told you before. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now Mary knows what I just said to you, that virgins aren't supposed to have babies, right? So look what she says. She's a smart girl. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, who we just talked about, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Now, there's certain things in the world that we can't do anything about. For instance, the law of gravity. You throw a rock up into the air, and it doesn't land in a tree, or a bird doesn't grab it in its beak. It's coming back down to the ground 100% of the time. I don't care whatever else you tell me. It's always going to come back down to the ground. I would bet my house on that, right? Because the law of gravity is a law of nature that's been set up, and we can't do anything about it. We can't overcome it. We've got things like that in our body. You've got to have oxygen to live. No matter who you are, you've got to have oxygen, some type of oxygen. If you don't have it, you'll die. If your oxygen supply gets cut off, you'll suffocate. One of the laws of nature. Another law of nature that's been set up that has to be true is it takes a man and it takes a woman to have a baby. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought, you know, they do this kind of stuff in labs. It still takes an egg from a woman, and it takes seed from a man to fertilize that egg, and that's what it takes for there to be a baby to be conceived and a baby to be born. Now, you might, we've gotten real smart, and we figured out how to do that in a Petri dish or, you know, to do in vitro fertilization and all that kind of stuff, but still, the two basic elements have to be there. There has to be the part from the woman, which is the egg, and there has to be the part from the man to fertilize that egg for that baby to be born. That's one of the laws of nature. But look what happens in this story. God comes in and he intervenes in the laws of nature and he says, this girl here is going to have a baby and she's never had any of her eggs fertilized. She's never had everything take place that's supposed to take place for her to have a baby. Has not happened. God has totally blown out of the water and changed the laws of nature. Why? For his own purposes. And he can do that. Because he set up the laws of nature. If God wants to overcome the law of gravity to do something, he can do that because he set it up. If God wants to overcome the law of, of sexual uh, relations and of, of reproduction between a man and a woman, he can do that because he's God and he set all of that up. And I love the verse where it says there in verse 37, where the angel says to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. So God not only intervened in time, not only did he intervene in the affairs of humans, but he also intervened 
in the laws of nature. He took those laws and he turned it around and he did whatever he needed to do with it. Now, before, in just a second, I want us, we're going to talk about the final way, the most important way that God intervened. But before we do that, I want you to notice, this is, this is why I want us to talk today about the wonder of, of the birth of Christ. We've just talked about the fact that a woman who was a virgin had a baby. Another woman who had, who had never been able to have children, who was past the age where we're supposed to have children, she had a baby. We talked about the fact that God took a pagan king and he used him to do his will to make a census happen so that Joseph and Mary would be in Bethlehem. And we talked about the fact that God showed up on the scene after 400 years of silence in the part of Jesus. And we hear all that and still we hear that and we think, yeah, we've heard all that before. It's really not that big of a deal. But it's amazing what God did when Jesus was born. And think about this. There's all this other stuff I haven't even mentioned. I haven't even mentioned all the, an the angels that visited. Now, yeah, you read in Scripture, there's a lot of angels that show up here and there, but the amount of angels that were visiting people before Jesus was born was unprecedented. There were angels showing up like every day in people's houses. Joseph had a visit from an angel. Mary had a visit from an angel. Elizabeth had a visit from an angel. The shepherds had a visit from an angel that showed up. There were angels all over the place coming to earth and talking to people. Not visions of angels, not dreams of angels, but angels standing face to face and having conversations with people in an unprecedented way before Jesus was born. I haven't even mentioned the fact that there was a star in the sky that was only there to tell a group of people how to get from where they were to where Jesus was. Unbelievable that that happened. And the star moved through the sky so that these guys could follow it and it would take them exactly to where Jesus was born. That's an amazing thing. I haven't even mentioned the fact that there were all these predictions and these prophecies for years and years and years before, before Jesus showed up, 700 years before and 1,000 years before, and all of them came true. The fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, the fact that he would be born to a virgin, all of those things came through. Or, or what about this? The fact that there was this regimented class structure in those days. The poor were very poor. They could never rise above that level. The rich were very rich. They would never stoop down to the level of the poor, uh, not, not even hardly to ever help them. And God took that class structure and he just blew it all up when Jesus came on the scene. He took the poorest, most looked down upon people like the shepherds and said, hey, how about y'all be the first ones to get to see the Son of God when he shows up on the earth and lets them come first. And then he takes a king, King Herod, who's extremely powerful. He has nothing to fear. And he gets so worried about a little baby that's born in a barn that he starts killing all the babies that were born. God took the class structure and he just totally turned that upside down. Now, all of those things are amazing. And all of those things should fill us with wonder at, at the fact that God came here to intervene in our lives. But here's the greatest intervention of them all. And the one that I don't want any of you to ever miss. Christmas is God's intervention into our sin. Christmas is God's intervention into our sin. See, when, when Jesus showed up and when Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, this was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan to erase sin from the earth. Sin would, will destroy all of us. And sin would destroy all of humankind. And God knew that. And just like someone, maybe you've had an intervention for a friend and you say, this path you're on, this path of alcoholism or drug abuse is going to end in your destruction. God knew that sin was going to end in the destruction of mankind. 
and he intervened into our sin by coming to earth as a baby. And the amazing thing about this is all of history leading up to this point had been, had been pointing to this. Everything that had happened before was leading to this moment where Jesus would be born in this stable and then would grow up and he would live a perfect life as an example for us. And then he would die on a cross and he would pay the sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. And then not only that, he would rise again after dying on the cross so that he would give us hope and he would defeat death forever. And everything that had happened before had been pointing to this moment. And so the moment when Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem and the shepherds show up, up and the wise men come and all that kind of stuff, that was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan from day one. See, listen to this. When sin entered the earth, there was this thing called the Garden of Eden, right? And you had Adam and you had Eve and they were naked and it was awesome and they were running around, you know, growing plants and just doing all the kind of stuff that, you know, just naked farmers is all they were, right? And it was amazing. No, nobody had ever been mean to each other. No one had ever talked about each other behind their back. No one had ever punched anyone else. No one had ever murdered anyone. None of that stuff had ever happened. And it was just the two of them and God. But then sin entered into the world. And from the moment sin entered into the world, God began pointing the way to Bethlehem. You know what it says in the Scripture happened in the Garden of Eden? It says, after sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve all of a sudden realized they were naked, or naked as we say around here. And they realized it and they were ashamed because they didn't have any clothes on. They didn't even know what clothes were, but they wanted to cover up. And so you know what God did? It says in the scripture, and for years I missed this, it says that God himself made them coverings. They didn't make their own, for years I thought they went and slaughtered a lamb or a a cow or something and and Adam fashioned like a sport coat out of it and they, they put on their own clothes. They didn't make their own coverings. It says in the Scripture that from the, from the after once they realized their nakedness and, they, and it centered into the world, God Himself covered them. And He covered them with the skin of an animal. Now, to, to get the skin of an animal, you have to kill that animal. You have to slaughter that animal. You have to shed its blood. And so, from that moment, God was pointing the way to the cross. He said, I'm going to cover your sin with the skin of this animal. And then from there you go to the story of Abraham. And Abraham has this son, and in the Scripture it says, he says, God tells Abraham he's got this son, Isaac, and God says, I want you to take your son, and it says this in the Old Testament, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. And so Abraham goes up the mountain, and he's going to kill Isaac. Because God has said to do it. But at the last moment before he does it, what do, they, what do they hear behind them? God says, don't do it. And behind them, they hear something caught in the thorns. And they go over there. And what is it? It's a male lamb. It's a ram. And instead, they sacrifice the male lamb instead of the only son. What is that pointing the way to? That's pointing the way to the fact that one day God would sacrifice his only son. This male lamb of God, he would sacrifice him 
for us. And then you go to the story of Moses, and they're out in the, they're out in the desert, and they're wandering around, and they'd done some stuff that had ticked God off, and so God sends snakes into the camp, and there's snakes everywhere biting people and killing them, and God tells Moses, take one of the snakes and lift it up on a pole. And as long as the people look up to that snake on the pole, as long as they keep their eyes on that, then they can't be killed by these other snakes. And then you get all the way to John chapter 3, where God says, just as Moses lifted up the snake on the pole and the people look to that for their salvation, one day Jesus will be lifted up on the cross and the people will look to him for their salvation. Over and over and over again, you see where from the beginning of time, from the moment that sin had entered to the world, that it was pointing to the way to when, then when Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and God would intervene into our sin. That's why Christmas should never, ever lose its wonder for us. Because it's more than a story about a baby being born. It's more than a story about shepherds and wise men and all those things are so important and so cool, but it's a story about God intervening in your life and my life. Because without God, without Jesus dying on the cross, I deserve to burn in hell for the rest of eternity. I love one of the songs we sang earlier. It said, you loved me even though I don't deserve it or something like that and, or even though I'm unworthy. That's exactly the way we are. None of us are worthy to enter into heaven. None of us, just because of who we are and where we were born and how much money we've made and how good we've been, none of us can enter into heaven like that. But Jesus said, I'm going to die for you. I was born in this stable. I lived this life. I'm going to die for you, and if you will trust me, you can enter into heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Matthew chapter 1, 20 and 21. When the, when the angel shows up to talk to Joseph, he sums it all up when he says this. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come just to be a good teacher. He didn't come just so that people could quote him later and sing songs about him later. He came so that he could die on the cross, and he could save you from sin, and he could save me from sin. And my prayer for you this Christmas is that every time you look at a nativity set, and every time you see a Christmas tree, and every time you see lights up, that you will be reminded that Christmas is the story of God intervening in your life to save you from sin. I want you to bow your heads. If you haven't asked Christ to forgive you of your sins and asked Him to come into your life, I want you to know today that He died for you. If you had been the only one that had ever sinned, He would have still died for you. And so if you need to do that today, if you need to ask Him to forgive you, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you will repeat these words after me, there's nothing magical about these words, but if you will mean them in your heart and you repeat these after me, you can know 
that God has forgiven you and you've begun a relationship with him and you need to turn your whole life over to him. So pray with me if you need to do that right now. Just repeat these words silently or out loud, either one. God, thank you for being born on earth as a baby. I believe that you did that for me. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you came back to life for me. And I ask you to forgive me. I need you. And I promise to live for you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't lose the wonder this Christmas. It's an amazing story. Tell it to people, celebrate it, and don't ever lose the wonder of it. Stand up and let's sing together.